Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Thank you once again so much for attending tonight's virtual author discussion. CNAS is committed to bold, innovative, bipartisan research, and the Military Veterans and Society Program plays a unique role in also hosting events designed to spark thoughtful discussions about and across the civil-military divide. Tonight, in honor of Women's History Month, we are thrilled to host such an event featuring all women veterans remotely in support of public health efforts. After my first book, Love My Rifle More Than You, was published in 2005, I was often the only woman veteran author on panels of war writers. Fifteen years later, I'm extremely proud to be able to elevate the voices of four other women veterans who are writing today. Hearing and reading more diverse voices reflecting a wider array of experiences from other women who have served is extraordinarily meaningful and gratifying to me, and I'm very excited that tonight's panelists write in different genres as well. Joining me this evening are Ryan Dosti, a former enlisted soldier who deployed to Iraq and is the author of the memoir Formation. Mary Doyle, a former senior NCO in the Army Reserve who served in the Gulf War era and is the author of numerous fiction books, including the Master Sergeant Harper Mystery Series. Kylan Hunter, a former Marine officer who has become an outspoken advocate for military and veteran women and is co-editor of the volume Invisible Veterans. And Kayla Jackson, a, former enlist, a current enlisted soldier in the Virginia Army National Guard and a journalist with ConnectingVets.com. I wanna start tonight by talking about being a woman in the military. The four of you served across different eras in two different branches of service, in a range of career fields, and in both the officer and enlisted ranks. You also came from very different backgrounds before joining the military. Some military experiences like wearing a uniform are universal. Can each of you talk briefly about whether you believe women's military experiences are or are not similar to each other's or to men's? We'll start with Kai tonight. Hi, and thank you so much for having me and welcome to everybody. I'm so glad we're able to still uh, get this done. When we think about experiences in uniform, this is something that is always been top of mind for me as I was very often the only woman um, in my particular unit. And one of the things I think that is important for us to remember is that while we are all women um, in the military, we all have had very different experiences. There are some things that are common, whether they are sometimes it's difficult for us to find uniforms that fit because of different body size. We might all share that experience. Um, the confusion around when someone asks for Sergeant Jones or Captain Jones and you show up and they look at you and are like, wait a minute, like I'm expecting a... Uh, wasn't expecting someone who looks like you. Those are, those are often um, similar experiences that, that women share, but women can also have very, very different experience based on the time that we served, you know, how normalized women's services has become, the type of jobs that we have, um, those that are in intelligence fields um, or PSYOP fields often are able to be more gendered and have a more gendered presentation of how they act in the service versus those who are in more traditionally masculine operational 
roles. And so I think looking at those, those nuances of how gender intersects with your operational capability is something that is, is very, very important. And then when we look at the relationship between women and men in uniform, uh, again, I think this often manifests itself much more once women get out of the military. And that it is often, and it's something um, that is very, very prevalent in Invisible, Invisible Veterans, which is the, you know, a little bit of the cover art is being shown behind me right now in our, our most recent um, edited volume, is that once women actually leave the service, they often find that they have much more in common with their male peers uh, with whom they serve than other women civilians. And so there's this bit of this you know, sort of disconnect of how you navigate now gender plus your military service on the, on the outside. Um, these are all important questions to ask. This is really what drove me into academia to look to, to study some of these um, phenomenons and something that I hope we can talk about much, uh, much more this evening. Thanks so much. Mary, how about you? What do you think about this? Well, I joined at a, in a completely different era. I uh, joined in 1979. The WACs uh, were ended in 1978. So uh, my uniforms were completely different. We had this god-awful summer uniform that was in lime green and, you know, and, and it was all mandatory skirts and ugly pumps. And it was just, just hor horrific. Um, I also joined at a time when almost all of the positions were purely uh, clerical. And my first position in the army was as a TAMS clerk in the motor pool. And when I showed up 19 year old Mary uh, in this garage with a whole bunch of men who were very accustomed to being on their own, um, you know, it was a, a big culture shock for them. In fact, there was only one restroom in the building and um, it was, they had boxes of pornography all over the place. <laughs> so so it, was a, it took a while for them to grow accustomed to me. And, um, and but it, what it was, was a good chance for me to assert myself and say, you know, this stuff is going to stop, you know. I, um, so it was a learning experience for me. Um, in terms of getting out um, after, once you take the uniform off, of course, people have a, an idea of what a veteran is, what a veteran looks like. Um, I can't help but look around whenever I park in the veteran-only parking spot at Harris Teeter, and, you know, you know somebody's just going to say something to you, and um, you get a little bit defensive. Uh, there were times when I've walked up to in um, – festivals and you're buying a ticket and the guy in front of you uh in with the hat that's got all the bling on it from some navy ship uh is offered the military discount or the veteran discount and you know i have to say yeah i'm a veteran <laughs> i get that 10 percent off too so um those are the obvious things of course Thank you so much. How about you, Kayla? Does this resonate with you? Do you feel like some of these are universal experiences or do you think that there's a lot, huge amount of diversity between our experiences among each other and with men? Yeah, um, I definitely think there's diversity um, just kind of across the board. And, and it's funny mentioning kind of time period, right? We have a kind of vast 
you know, example of women who have served and myself, you know, still serving now. Um, but even in, you know, 2017, I've been in a unit that was all male and artillery detachment, and they had never served with a woman before. Um, so the first couple of months was quite an introduction. Um, actually, the first drill that I had, they didn't really, I don't think they were well prepared. Um, so when I was looking at the drill letter, the introduction said, hello, gentlemen as an example for what we were gonna do for drill. And I was like, okay, I don't think anybody knows that I'm coming. Um, so showing up um, and letting them know that I was gonna be you know, in their platoon was definitely a surprise. You know, and this is you know, in this century. So um, I think both, you know, something that someone mentioned before about you know, women veterans, I know from reporting on this from the past couple of years, um, that women veterans often don't identify openly, right, as veterans once you get out. And I think that um, also is kind of a way in which our service links us together and is very similar, even though, you know, serving across different time periods, whether you're reserve, active component, um, that similarity of not kind of taking hold of your identity when you first get out as a veteran, I think is definitely something that links us together. Um, and then of course, kind of on um, the men and women aspect, I definitely think there are differences um, kind of across the board. And I you know, mentioned before, whether you served um, you know, in a different job, in a different region, time period, uh, I think that that's kind of the beauty of looking at military service is you know, people have this idea, of course, you know, we are one force, we're a conglomerate, but there's so many different nuances uh, depending on, you know, how you identified within the service. Thanks, and now turning to you, Ryan, what do you think? Um, I think that the ex experiences women have can, can greatly differ uh, depending on uh, obviously the time and even the place. I served in two different units um, that were literally night and day. So uh, Fort Polk, they weren't, they weren't used to women. Um, and it was, it was um, a com more of a combat place. And I had a lot of my uh, very interesting experiences at Fort Polk. Uh, and I thought that would, would be everyone's. I thought that was all women's experiences. I thought everything I was going through, surely everybody else must be going through the same thing. And then when I got to Fort Gordon, it was a completely different world. I had um, a woman commander, um, which was the first time I ever had that. Uh, was actually doing my job, and um, the way that men and women interacted was completely different. And um, I even, in the beginning, initially sort of stuck out a little bit because of um, the exterior that I had created, that sort of roughness that you create to fit in with uh, more of the combat-like uh, guys. Uh, so I could see how and not that one experience is better than the other or um, is harder or, or not, but uh, you two women could have two completely different military experiences. As far as getting out, um, for me personally, I had a really, really hard time connecting with uh, civilian women. Um, that was very hard for me. And uh, I, I think sometimes it's still, I've calmed down a little bit, but when you first get out, you know, you're, um, you have a, a roughness to yourself uh, or a um, an assertiveness and um, and it's funny uh, I used to joke around on campus I would always be able to identify who the veterans were by the way they walk and um, even as a woman you know our the way we walk is different and other veterans usually can pick it up but um, you know I still get the I remember not too long ago that a police officer was uh, doing something with our vehicles my husband's also a veteran and he looked at my vehicle and he said, oh, was your husband in the military? And I said, well, yes. And so was I, that is my vehicle, you know? 
And so you often get that or, or the cross, what I call it the crossover handshake where um, they say, thank you for your service. And they cross over you to handshake your husband or your significant other or the man standing next to you. And you're like, mm, I was there too. So. Yeah. Um, one of my friends said she can recognize my walk from across a mall. <laughs> so it's funny that you said that. Uh, so the first woman officially enlisted as a woman in 1917, 100 years later, the first women enlisted in the infantry. Can you each talk about one important policy change related to women's military service that has taken place during or after your own service? Mary, I'd like to start with you this time since you, uh, I think, joined before uh, anybody else on the panel. technically challenged sometimes. Uh, um, obviously, it's, it's the different jobs that you are um, uh, qualified to take. Uh, when I, like I said, when I joined academic or uh, uh, administrative jobs were the only choices I had for the first six years, I was um, either a TAMS clerk or I was a supply specialist. It wasn't until my, set, my um, first re-enlistment that I was able to venture off and do something else, which was broadcasting, uh, you know, in public affairs. Um, so there's a lot of big choices. Uh, even when I first joined, you never saw female pilots. You never saw female, even female uh, drivers or maintenance people. So um, aside, even aside from the whole combat, ch the choices of going into different combat positions. So, um, and, and as a result, you never saw uh, senior officers because they didn't have that combat experience. They weren't in the kinds of jobs that, that, um, uh, advanced a career unless you were a nurse or a doctor or something like that. Um, so yeah, it, as a, as a career, as a military career, no matter what service, obviously there's a whole lot more choices. And it also means that by the time you get out of the military, you have a lot more, uh, civilian choices as well. Thank you. Um, how about you, Ryan? What do you think is the most significant policy change that you've seen? Um, I mean, th for me, there's there's two. Quickly uh, is the combat one, and the reason why I mentioned that was because um, when I got out, I never, I wasn't sure that women would ever actually be allowed into combat arms. And I know the thing that started my book, my memoir, uh, it it began from me writing a science fiction piece about a woman in combat arms. And I remember my Marine, uh, my husband, who was a Marine infantryman, he's like, women will never be in combat arms. And then <laughs> that was true then. And so now I get to, to gleefully say how wrong he is. But the other um, big change for me, and um, I, sometimes I always hate bringing it back to this particular point, but uh, was the creation of SHARP. Um, when I was in uh, that the idea that they talked, there was EO um, briefings and stuff like that, EO violations, but the idea of consent was not talked about. Um, there was no victim advocates. Uh, the fact that rape was happening in the military wasn't really spoken about. It wasn't, it was sort of like this dirty little secret and, um, 
you know, everybody wanted to just sort of be, be quiet about it. So the fact that Sharp has been created, there's victim advocates, they're, they're doing actual briefings on what consent is and when consent cannot be given. That's a huge point to me, um, even though I have other problems with Sharp that I'll mention on the next question, maybe. Thank you so much. How about you, Kayla? You're still serving. Uh, are you still seeing ongoing policy changes that are making a big difference in uh, your military experience? Yeah, I mean, definitely, obviously, combat arms for me, because it's the most, I think, recent and really big significant change. And I've been able to, you know, while still being in, see that, um, kind of see the fruits of those changes and still see sort of the trickle down effect. Um, I think now it's really interesting even in, you know, my own units and in places where I've served, uh, you'll see posters that are asking, you know, for women to um, look into infantry MOSs who are, you know, on the senior NCO and officer level because they don't want women um, to come into the infantry MOS and don't have any other kind of women to give them guidance. And so we're seeing that change happen a couple years ago, but it's still kind of taking time uh, to manifest, especially on the leadership level. Uh, but I think that's really important. And then the second one is more of a, it's kind of a small nuance specifically to the army, but hair policy changes that came into effect specifically uh, related to like locks, braids and cornrows for me um, personally, right. As a black woman, that was really important because um, you know, getting ready to go to drill or in boot camp or any other time um, where I've been, you know, activated for say like a, a state mission, I get up an extra hour and a half early than everybody else just to make sure that my hair, um, you know, is ready in a bun. And so I think policies like that to make sure that we have a really um, diverse and also included force to make sure that we're thinking about um, how, you know, as soldiers, you know, we're serving other people, but how to make sure that our command is serving us, that we can, you know, do our job well. Uh, those are two really big important ones for me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you um, bringing, bringing that into the conversation. That's really helpful. Kai, I saved you for last because since you're on Dakowitz, you could actually probably spend the entire rest of our webinar on this, and I'd like you to not do that. But if you can think of something that you may be aware of kind of behind the scenes that isn't as public facing that you think could have the potential to have like long-term impact. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you're right, I could spend two hours talking just about this because it's, <laughs> but I won't, I'll spare everyone. And I think, you know, the, the, the big things that we see in the news quite a bit are these opening of uh, previously closed MOS or military occupational specialties, um, changes in sexual assault response. I mean, these are things that are all incredibly, incredibly important. I mean, as a Cobra pilot, I benefited from the opening of all combat aircraft just before I, I started. So those are great. But I think when, when I think about things that are having the biggest impact, um, I think there are, there are two that people don't really talk about very much because they're not necessarily really like sexy policies, but they're going to actually have a huge impact. Um, the first is the changes in co-location policies to actually move across services within the entirety of the DOD. So to not just have internal service, but um, between service co-location requirements. Um, military women are much, much more likely than um, their male counterparts to be married to another service member. Um, most married military women are married to another active duty or reservist. And I think that's the other side is that the Colo policy is extended into the reserves, which helps both um, both women who are active duty as well as women who are reservists, keeping them in the reserves to know that that's a policy. Um, one of the biggest issues that we see is actually with women's retention 
into the military, that it's, that it's not, you know, just getting women in, but keeping them. Um, things like childcare, family, long terms of separation. And when these discussions in dual military couples come up with regards to geo-bacheloring, like if you're going to be stationed 3,000 miles apart, the consequence tends to be that the woman gets out. And so these changes in co-location policies where they are much more there, there, there's much more emphasis put on guaranteeing. I mean, nothing in the military is going to be a guarantee, but a lot more emphasis put on ensuring that married couples, um, and not just married, they've, they've also expanded the definition. If you share a child, if you have um, a proven cohabitation, you know, you own a house together, if you're a non-married couple, like they've really expanded that definition. You're seeing a lot more uh, longevity and women's retention really going up. And it's, it's, especially as we're opening up these new roles, it's not just going to be getting women in, but keeping them in so they can achieve those, those senior leadership positions. And then the next is the change to the uh, parental leave policies. And I'll say parental that it's, that it's not just the initial maternal care for the convalescent leave to get over being pregnant, which is how it typically be thought of, but, you know, a, primary and secondary caregiver leave and a really pushing that both of those are taken very seriously. It's changed a lot of perception. And, and these are slow, these are slow changes. It's not like the military overnight has all of a, all of a sudden become a family friendly job, but you're starting to see commanders having real conversations with all of their troops, whether they are male or female, men or women, about what plans are for caregiver responsibility. And so it's changing the culture. It's normalizing that parenthood may be a part of a service member's life cycle. Um, it's, it's really destigmatizing that conversation. It's allowing service members to have more open conversations about these are gonna be my plans. Um, and that, that again, helps create a culture, you know, I think to Kayla's point a lot saying like, how are we serving those who are choosing to serve all of us? And if you can make something easier just by making it easier to have the conversation, you can get to a lot better solutions to what's often a, which is always going to be a very challenging um, part of someone's life. But if you can have these open conversations, you can get to better solutions. When the command isn't often involved in these solutions, you ensure that care is available for kids, that you are, you making sure that individuals are also getting time to their family in line with what's needed for for the mission mission first so i really think those two things are beginning to normalize the experience of women in the military and and that normalization is what's going to help with retention it's going to help with promotion it's going to help um prevent a lot of this this stigma around being a woman in the military thank you and that also teases up really nicely for the next question which is what remaining policy changes are necessary to further improve women's military experiences. Ryan, do you want to start this one since you mentioned you had some thoughts on SHARP that maybe maybe this is where that falls in or maybe it's something else? Uh, no, it's similar to SHARP. Uh, and it's, it's also a cultural problem. It's not necessarily a policy problem. It's more of, you know, you have a good or a decent policy in place, but it's not being taken seriously. And I hear this a lot um, because I get a lot of feedback from readers um, who tell me that, yes, there's sharp is in place now, but they have the people who are leading it are making fun of it or they're making jokes while they're going through it or allowing jokes to happen. And uh, so I think the problem is um, with the culture that's that's surrounding um, sharp. 
The other policy that I would really love to see happen is um, to take prosecution or, or to decide if a case should continue to prosecution out of the commander's hands and put into a third party's hands, um, a non-military third party, um, because that allows people to continue with a, an investigation um, and a commander can't shut it down for whatever personal reasons they might have. But I know the military has a lot of pushback with that. They don't want to lose their autonomy. I get that. Um, but I think that uh, doing this will, will help with, um, with uh, cases being able to actually be prosecuted instead of the very, very low rate of uh, prosecution that we have going on right now. Thank you very much. Um, I'll go to you next, Mary. What do you think? Um, well, I was just thinking that I can't think of anything. <laughs> I, I was enjoying listening to other people's positions on it. That's fine. You don't have to have, um, have, have opinions on everything. Um, I will turn to Kai next. What are, what do you think? And, and limit yourself to one. I'm sure you have hundreds of DACWOS recommendations, but what do you think is like a really top priority at this point? I think one of the things, and it, it, I think it's going to address some of Ryan's issues as well around the culture, is a actually taking seriously this notion of gender mainstreaming in regards to their their top down planning processes. Um, all of the services say that they have a like a gender advisor who's part of their strategic planning process. It tends to be a random B billet for someone that they have as a part time collateral duty. Um, something that is very important to, to keep in mind is that we talk a lot about, okay, we need more women in the military. Like, I think everyone who's here says, yes, we do, but we never really embrace the why. Like, what are the strategic outcomes that we are looking to achieve with having more women in the military? How are we managing, how are we mirroring those outcomes with our talent management for those that we have, those are that we are recruiting? How are we... Um, doing our, our you know, crisis mitigation planning in a way that has um, gender in the forefront. How are we doing actually war planning? Like when we're actually getting ready to go to war, that is keeping these gendered aspects in the forefront. And so I think a actual integrating, um, you know, full gender mainstreaming at the strategic level is something that the services need to move beyond just having as a collateral duty and having as a full-time part of um, their strategic planning shops. Thank you. And Kayla, you can close this one out. So policy for me, um, I think it's more of like a process uh, and talking about protective equipment is really big for me. One personally, because I've experienced it, but also on the reporting side, um, we've done kind of a lot of work in terms of you know, Army and research about um, protective equipment for women in the military, specifically talking about our helmets and body armor, um, which has been like a long time coming. But a lot of people don't realize that um, the equipment uh, and the uniforms up until a couple years ago, like naturally were fitted for men. Uh, so for me, being, you know, 5'5", um, you know, under 200 pounds, I'm getting body armor fitted for a man like twice my size which you might not think is too, you know, too big of a problem, but when you add in my helmet, when you add in a weapon, when you add in um, plates, and then you want me to kind of move around, then it becomes an issue of like, can I actually do my job? Um, and it's 
it's funny because the army has done great in terms of research and there's tons of different versions of body armor, you know, out there that they're fielding. However, it doesn't always get down to the lowest levels. Um, on one hand, I know that that's, you know, a mission and priority um, issue, of course, of, you know, deployment cycles and, and who's kind of the highest priority, but also, you, you know, we train to fight. Um, so if you want, you know, a unit to be, you know, ready to deploy, especially on the reserve um, and guard side, um, whose op tempo is extremely high in comparison to, to recent years um, or years past, you want to make sure that you're fielding equipment um, that is appropriate, that fits, um, and so, you know, so that we can do our job and complete mission. Very frustrating for me to hear that these are still <laughs> problems since they yeah. were <laughs> problems when I was in Iraq in 2003. Yeah, um, yeah okay, thank you very much for, for bringing that up. Um, I want to turn next to the civ-mil divide, the divide between civilians and military personnel. Um, some of us talk about that a lot, and I'm wondering whether you think that that is exacerbated or reduced for women. Ryan, you talked about this a little bit earlier, feeling as if, um, you know, it's really hard to connect with civilian women, um, and especially when you first get home. And I'm wondering if each of you feels like, um, like it's, it's more challenging as a woman to bridge that civil mill divide, or you think that there is an easier time coming back and, and getting, getting, taking the uniform off and reconnecting. I'm supposed to pick who goes first. Um, Kayla, why don't you take this one first? Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Um, so for me, it's, it's funny because, you know, I'm still serving, but I'm also in a reserve component. Um, and I kind of joke a lot of times when people ask me, you know, about militaries, I often don't express the fact that I'm in the National Guard unless it really comes up. Just because in terms of, you know, identity going through the world, um, I think of, you know, what you can physically see is like what's most important. So a lot of times I you know, we'll joke that the National Guard is like my side hustle, even though they, it does take up a lot of time and I've been in for seven years um, and hope to, you know, continue. Uh, but for me, I think that there is a divide both for men and women, just because, you know, going in, you know, years now, we're still actively, you know, involved um, in conflict overseas. And this has been happening, you know, when 9-11 happened, obviously I was, you know, in elementary school um, and now I'm 25 <laughs> and we're still there. Um, and still actively involved in missions in other countries. And I think that that's definitely a big reason of why, um, you know, people's attention spans, you know, they, they care about different things. And, and when you're not, um, you know, directly related to someone who may be serving, um, to a cousin, to a friend, to a family member, it can be a big challenge as a civilian to really understand um, what the military does, why it's so important, um, all the little nuances that go uh, with being a military member. And of course, now, you know, continuing, we see way more um, enlistment and commissions from people who are generationally military. You know, you're not seeing um, young kids just come off the street um, who just have an interest in the military. You know, they want to go to college or trade school. And so that's the challenge too on the recruiting side. And so when you're having challenges recruiting people who don't have a generational connection from the military, uh, then your military connection within the force gets even smaller. And so that presents a challenge um, on the civilian side from just understanding, you know, what our mission is, how we can contribute, um, just kind of to the general public. Thank you so much. Um, how about you, Kai? What do you think on this? Yeah, I, I think women are in a really unique position here. And it's, it's this phenomenon where women go from what is often the most visible service members. You know, you can, if you've got a a unit and you think of a, a, a unit or even the idea of uniform, so much of that is to make a sort of blend in um, to the most invisible veterans that are out there that, you know, we have to tend to like scream it from the rooftops. 
mean, it, it as I remember being a, a young lieutenant in a Cobra squadron, which anyone who knows much about Cobra squadrons, like they're not the nicest of environments. I love being a Cobra pilot. I love all my Cobra pilots, but as one of our, our uh, sister squadrons, Patches said, like, we hate each other, but we hate you more. That's kind of the vibe that, that, that goes on there. But, you know, if, as, especially as a young pilot in there, if I ever made a mistake, which every young pilot is going to make mistakes, every young anything, as you get in, as you're learning your job, you're going to make mistakes. If I made a mistake, everyone remembered that I made a mistake because I looked so different. If one of my peers made the exact same mistake, people would forget about it so much more quickly because, oh, it's that white dude with a short haircut that made the mistake. You know, like, like they're, they're very, like, it, it becomes a bit of a, which one, who was that? Which one, which one was it? And, and so for when we're serving, often so much of what we try to do is just blend in. Like just, I just want to, to blend in. I don't want to be noticed. I want to put my head down and do my job. I stop. I don't want to be referred to as the token anything. I'm just here to do a job. And then as soon as you get out, you're in almost the exact opposite position where the, you know, Ryan talked about this crossover handshake type idea, you know, the, do I, I, there's been a lot too with depending on the area you served of, of do women even identify as veterans because they weren't part of a combat arms MOS. Um, do I have to make a big deal out of wanting veteran services to being part of veteran service organizations to get the benefits I earned and am actually entitled? I mean, things like the GI bill and having to go process through campus, um, you know, veteran shops it's like the so then if you want to be a woman veteran it tends to only be the other thing you can be as well because you have to shove it in people's face so much for them to see that this is even a piece of your identity that it's it's really this this double bind that i think makes it even harder for women to often fully reintegrate because if you want veteran to be part of your identity it has to be so much in the forefront in order for people to actually accept that you are the veteran um, where you had just spent your entire career before trying to do everything you could to blend in. Um, and so this, this is one of these real tensions that, that women um, experience and it, it manifests itself in you know, several often unfortunate um, ways with around to mental health issues and even, even physical health issues. But it's a, it's, a, it's a real struggle. And I think it's one of the things that likely it's the unfortunate thing that I think likely cuts across so many of our experiences, regardless of the era in which we served or the MOS um, in which we served. Thank you so much. Um, Mary, coming to you again, what do you think about gender and the CIVMIL divide? Well, I, I, I just, what kept flashing in my head were the, those um, scenes of the surprise scenes, the, re, the surprise I'm coming home scenes where when the man comes home, it's the wife who's crying and the child who's crying. When the woman comes home, the husband is like not even part of the story. It's the woman and her child, and it's that mother role, you know. So she doesn't even get to be a wife. She's a soldier, and then she's a mother. And the, the husband isn't really part of the story because he's not going to cry. So... Um, there's there's that whole kind of completely different image that is always sort of being shoved in front of uh, the civilian audience. 
And then uh, one thing that I always remember about being in uniform was that I always felt uncomfortable when there were family days because the wives always looked at you <laughs> and said, that's that one woman who was part of that group. And, um, you know, she's hanging out with my husband for a couple of weeks or she's deploying with him, you know, for months at a time. And, um, you know, so it, it's always that, that, you, you know, you're the other woman, whether it, you're really the other woman or not. The other thing is once you're um, once you are in that deployed situation and you're the only woman I was I think I was um, one of three women in a 1200 person um, outpost in northern Bosnia at Camp McGovern and um, you know you're surrounded by men and uh, you, for some people you would see that as an opportunity <laughs> for others it's it's just um, intimidating, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're bombarded by this, you know, hypersexuality and you're, you know, you sometimes you, it's difficult sometimes to just kind of walk from your office to your tent and uh, you're, it's like this uh, constant sort of, especially if it's people that are outside of your unit and, um, then you come home and you you tell people, yeah, I was on this installation with 1,200 men and, you know, three women. And, you know, it's supposed to be this great thing. And it just um, is not. <laughs> um, I'm trying to be mindful of time and want to save some time for uh, audience questions towards the end. So, Ryan, I'm going to skip you on this one. We're going to do one lightning round question for all of you, and then I'm going to turn to some questions about being an author. So, lightning round question, what is the most ridiculous question anybody has ever asked you about your service? Mine was when I was asked when I got back from Iraq if I was allowed to carry a gun since I was just a girl. So, first up, Kai. Um, a, a similar one. They asked if there was some um, magic stop on the Cobra that wouldn't allow it to get shot because I was a girl. <laughs> no way. <laughs> um, Ryan. Um, I think the one I used to get, again, a couple of times was, oh, so you were in the green zone. And it wasn't even a question. It was a statement. Not that there's anything wrong with the green zone, but just by simply existing, I was assumed to be in the green zone, which men don't get that same assumption. Kayla. Um, kind of not to be shocking, but I've asked, had multiple people ask me if I've shot anyone, which is oh. like not a fun conversation to have. It's like, please don't ask anyone that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely going back to the Sid Mill divide conversation. <laughs> right. Um, and how about you, Mary? Yeah, that you know, did you carry a gun? You know, it's the gun. Yeah, no, I carried a weapon. <laughs> right. <laughs> I love it. All right, now we're going to dig a bit into being a woman veteran author. Ryan, I'd like you to start on this one. Your memoir is really beautifully written. It delves into both your military experiences and their aftermath. Was it hard to reveal as much as you do? And how did you decide which of your experiences to share? Um, I pretty much just threw up on the paper. Like I just, I just wrote everything. Um, and I wrote everything, the moments that I remembered the most, which in, in some ways turned obviously out to be some of the more traumatic moments or the moments that stood out to me. 
Um, and of course you have to mold those into a narrative. So some things get cut and some things didn't, but um, the things that I decided to keep was based on how well I remembered it. And some of the dialogue that's in there is actual, not all of it, obviously, but some is actual word for word, the way I remember it being said to me, some of the way my commander would speak to me or when a, you know, some of my command would question me and, and those things. Um, so I, I just, I, I, it's not a really good answer. I really just wrote, <laughs> just got it all out. <laughs> Yeah, I, I get that. That was um, a lot of my process, too, in a lot of ways. Uh, so, Mary, turning to you, in addition to your own service, you also worked with Shoshana Johnson on her memoir. And I'm curious how the really intimate knowledge that you have of women's military service informs or influences your fiction writing. Um. Well, it, it played a big role in working with Shoshana on, on her book because, um, you know, we, we, had be, we had been to the same desert, we had been on that same convoy, you know, so there were a lot of those experiences of hers that I, that I shared that I was able to weave into the, into the narrative. In terms of my fiction, the Peacekeeper's Photograph, the Master Sergeant Harper series is all basically a series of uh, different situations that I was in throughout my reserve career. Peacekeeper's Photograph takes place in Bosnia during the um, Bosnia peacekeeping mission, which I deployed to. Um, the Sapper's Plot takes place in Hon Honduras during a, a MedCap mission. And um, the General's Ambition takes place in uh, uh, Hohenfels, Germany where um, you know, there's all kinds of major exercises going on. And those are all places, that, a lot of the situations, a lot of the scenes happened in other places. Um, the characters are all sort of drawn from uh, past experiences. So um, uh, especially the Master Sergeant Harper series, it's, it's just wall to wall, uh, Mary's memories. <laughs> But fictionalized. Um, and but I, fictionalized. Encourage, I encourage folks to read them. I um, have read them and really thought they were gripping and super fun to read. Great. Thank you. Um, Kai, turning to you, as you mentioned earlier, you are a co-pilot. You teach, you um, serve in, you served on Dakowitz, you write opinion pieces, you write academically. I'm wondering if you would be willing to share what drives you to engage with some aspects of your personal lived experience in this kind of more intellectual. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, when I, when I left the Marine Corps, I made a, a very intentional decision to go into to grad school and into um, end up pursuing a, a PhD looking at women's integration in the military. Um, primarily, I mean, for, for two reasons. One, um, I think there's two reasons people get PhDs. One is they're young and really smart and are going to create some great new methodological way of doing things. Um, I wasn't one of those people. I went to go fly Cobras instead. Um, and the second is that they, they've had experiences that they are really, really unsatisfied with any of the actual intellectual explanations that are out there. And you're, you're getting at, you know, it, am I some crazy unicorn or um, is this, actually a common experience that happened to, um, to someone else. 
And I'd like to know, like, if I am a crazy unicorn, there's two of us. There's actually one other woman Cobra pilot who has a PhD in political science. So where we're, it's, it's a great pathway if you want to go become an academic, you know, get a PhD, be a Cobra pilot first. No, but, you know, in, in some ways, um, my, my dissertation project when I was uh, going through that was therapy for me because it was digging into a lot of the, some amazingly wonderful experiences that I had that I couldn't have had anywhere else in the Marine Corps, some incredibly painful experiences that I had that I also couldn't have anywhere else but in the Marine Corps. And, and in, in trying to intellectualize them and almost separate myself and say, okay, if, if I look at these things, can they make, can I make sense of why they happened? And by doing that, I think you get to much more meaningful solutions. You get to much more, some of the policy solutions we talked about before, whether they're sharp or co-location policies um, is important. But then the other thing that I, I saw as, especially if I look at the way I've engaged with taking my academic work and engaging with it in the popular press, using my own story makes it real to people. This isn't something that lives in an ivory tower that um, we want to, you know, sit on the, the shelf and collect dust. You know, these, this is a, there's a real face to these type of experiences. There's a real consequence to these types of experiences. Um, there's the, the gender is a real thing we need to, to grapple with, with regards to how we, how we fight wars. And so by becoming vulnerable in that way, not only have I seen there's more access, both in terms to congressional leaders, military leaders, and, and even the press, but more access to the women who are serving right now. And by not being some detached researcher who's just trying to get tenure, but someone who really wants to move the needle and make their lives better, by sharing what I went through myself, like it... it it, the, the, the research becomes real and it becomes meaningful and it becomes actionable. And in anything academic that I do, that is the, the key cornerstone to, to that piece of, of work. Thank um, you. Um, and Kayla, closing out my round of questions with you, do you think that your experience serving in the National Guard helps your journalism be more accurate when you're covering military and veteran topics? Or are you ever worried that it might affect your impartiality? Yeah, I think in some ways it, it definitely helps me kind of make informed decisions and informed questions. Um, I like to let people know that, you know, one, I'm in the National Guard. Um, I got in as an engineer. I enlisted in 2012. So all of those different nuances don't necessarily make me an expert on like all things military. Like literally a couple weeks ago, I learned something new about like the Navy's tattoo policy. Um, right. So all services are different. I think for me, when it comes to reporting, it definitely helps me kind of think about questions and be more intentional. Um, a lot of times it it helps me figure out who I'm supposed to go to uh, in terms of, you know, navigating the craziness that is just the, the Defense Department organization. Like, I know what PAO I'm supposed to talk to. I know if I need to go through a PAO. I know, um, you know, the difference between, you know, your XOs versus your senior enlisted. So all of those different kind of initial 
humps of like maybe a civilian who doesn't really understand military culture, there's an ease of kind of me entering that as a reporter. Um, But I'm also very cognizant of making sure that I'm, you know, that that doesn't kind of include bias, right? So I try to myself not to report on things that happen within the National Guard or reserve just as like a personal choice as a journalist. Um, So when we have conversations, you know, in our newsroom, especially now, you know, recently with, um, you know, the pandemic of of COVID-19. Obviously, um, I'm very cognizant of, you know, making sure that I'm keeping contact with my command because I don't know if we're going to be activated. Um, And so that's a decision that I kind of make within my newsroom and personally um, to kind of separate myself because I'm still serving. But I think it is kind of a really important piece and a lot of other you know, veterans and current military, you should think about going into journalism because I think um, there's a big need for it. Um, and kind of that going through that initial understanding hump, definitely, uh, the service definitely helps. As a PAO, I can tell you that that is refreshing. <laughs> <laughs> I love that two of the panelists are like actively recruiting people to follow their post-military career footsteps. I think that is um, fantastic. Um, Thank you all so much for your really thoughtful and insightful responses to my round of questions. We're going to open it up to audience questions. So audience members, you're welcome to submit questions for any or all of our panelists by text using the Q&A function at the bottom of your webinar screen. We are also taking questions on Twitter at hashtag CNAS underscore MVS. We're already getting some questions coming through, and I'm going to start with some that came in in advance. Um, And... Folks, we only have about 10 minutes, so panelists, I'm going to ask you to be concise in your answers so that we can try to get through a number of these. Um, And I know many of us speak in paragraphs, so I'm going to ask you to push against that. Um, So Amy asked, how do women veteran authors see their writing impacting the next generation of women serving? Anybody really drawn to tackling that one? Mary, I think I saw you wiggle. Go for it stupid mic on. Uh, (laughs) um, I would just say that uh, uh, we need to set down that history. Um, We need to be explaining to people and telling people uh, what our experiences are because um, what we write becomes part of history. And uh, right now, the only history that we have of women in the military was written by men. So we need to write our own stories. Thank you. Anyone else want to jump in on that one? Kai? I just think the more that we normalize our own experiences as well as codify the experiences of others, the, the better that we, we normalize the experience and we make it easier for the women serving right now to be open about their experiences. Thank you so much. Um, Gail asks, as women, did you feel you had a more difficult time getting published? I'll first turn to the two authors that we have who have been published in the commercial uh, press uh, solo. So I'll start with you, Mary, and then I'll turn to Ryan. Uh, Well, my first published book came because it was uh, somebody was looking for an author. So um, Shoshana Johnson's book, that's the only book that I have that's traditionally published. Um, They basically came to me. But it was because my agent had been shopping my novels around for a couple of years and I wasn't getting um, getting any hits. 
I can't say it, whether it's because the book is crap or because, you know, people just didn't want to have a, a woman's perspective in, in uniform. Um, I thought that I was writing kind of a, the accidental sleuth um, who happened to be a woman in uniform. The editors just didn't get that. They didn't understand. Um, and they wanted, they wanted a, a shoot 'em up something or, you know, some sort of special forces type of character. So, uh, you know, on the one hand, I, I, I would say, yes, it's a little bit more difficult, but I, I'm sure it just depends on what the, what, it, what the book is about, what you're, what you're writing. Thanks. How about you, Ryan? Um, I think for me, my mind was a memoir and to be incredibly blunt, it's a rape story. And um, in, it was um, being shopped around just before Me Too, but I think it definitely got momentum as uh, Me Too became a thing. So um, I think I always wonder if that plays a part. Uh, right now I'm writing a military uh, literary fiction and I feel a lot more pressure now with, with this book and the fear of uh, being a woman writing about women in military in a genre that's typically male dominated. Mm -hmm. So um, I probably could better answer that question if this book gets published, but I definitely do. There is a, an anxiety and a fear as you try to break into this genre. Thank you. Um, we have a question from Giselle. What advice would you give your young author self when it comes to writing? Uh, Ryan, you want to start off on this one? Uh, the, what advice would I give my young author self? Just uh, keep writing. Um, oh, my biggest thing is draft. First drafts are supposed to suck. Like they're horrible and that's okay. Just, just get it out there and worry about getting it better later and don't worry about comparing yourself or, um, anything like that. First draft suck, write it, and then it'll get better later. Anybody else want to jump in on that one with different advice? Okay, um, moving on. Um, we got a question from Sarah about magical policy changes. I think we talked about desired policy change earlier, so I'm going to pass on that one, but um, if any of you have further thoughts on that after, please feel free to jump on Twitter and engage in additional discussion on that. And then also a question from Christy. Um, have any of you gone through therapy to write or after writing? She says, I know I have a story to tell, but keep getting triggered when thinking of events and struggle with sitting down to actually write it out. Any advice to steps of getting past reactivation? I personally, I'll also jump in and say um, that I think therapy is great and that there are also some programs that uh, are specifically aligned with therapeutic interventions um, where writing and therapy are intertwined. And so that may be a place to start where you're going to get um, good mental health support during the writing process. But happy to also hear from any of the panelists on their thoughts on this. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, for me, uh, just writing about it in, in um, the beginning was really hard. I went through cognitive behavioral, behavioral therapy where the entire point of that particular therapy was to be able to say the word rape and to be able to write um, my what happened to me and to write my trauma. So for me, um, it ended up writing about it ended up helping me more. And especially as I wrote the book, yes, it was hard. I went through dark times. There was times I would come home and be angry or dark or my husband be like, what the hell's going on? Who are you? And um, I think that's, that's going to happen. But um, there's also times where after you've gotten through a really uh, dark or hard part, you get sort of elated and you feel great. And you're like, I'm doing this. I've gotten through this. So 
uh, it can be very therapeutic um, and triggering, but worth it. Um, anybody else really want to jump in on this one? Okay, uh, also I'll note, we have um, from Mags that she's really enjoying the online format and wants to know if we're gonna make this a regular series. We are hoping to do additional um, in this series. And so stay tuned for what uh, topics or types of authors uh, we may come up with next. And um, I'm glad that the virtual process is working well for folks. Um, also have a question from uh, an anonymous person about senior men and working with women and uh, on the promotion side and really kind of digging into the um, the process side of being in the military. And I'm going to ask you to stay tuned, uh, anonymous commenter, for uh, an upcoming event we have on women's military leadership. And I think that's going to be a great format for us to dig into some of these topics. So watch our Twitter feed, watch our email list for the upcoming Athena discussion, which I think is gonna be a great format for this. Um, and then we have a question from Kate about whether it's been challenging to get readership for our work and do we run into publishers who think the military woman's story is too niche. Mary, can you um, dig a little bit more into this? You touched on it earlier and I was wondering if you could tackle it a little more deeply. It's like I turned my stupid mic. Uh, um, yeah, I think, you know, especially in fiction, uh, the military story, you know, and, and it happens in romance, too. It's like people want this. It's got to be this train killer, you know, this snake eating, um, you know, uh, macho guy and and they're looking for this kind of thriller um uh story um and i just feel like there there are readers out there who want uh a more thoughtful more literary uh, you know just something different than that and some like a true representation of um what a majority of the people in uniform do when they're in uniform like um dave abrams book fobbit kind of you know went there and um so i i yes i think it's difficult to for people to understand that you know there's this different world in the military and not you know the train killer kind of thing um but you know all you got all you can do is put it out there and hope that people find it Thank you. We are almost out of time. So Kayla, I'd like to ask if you have any uh, closing thoughts on being a woman veteran and a journalist. And then Kai, I'll ask you if you have any closing thoughts on uh, being a woman veteran who is uh, speaking out as an advocate and using her voice to try to change policy. Kayla? Yeah, I think it's kind of points to a question before, um, but in a different way, not so much about um, are women military stories too niche? Um, I kind of made the decision um, in my newsroom where I work, you know, with my coworkers about a year ago to focus like a majority of my reporting on women in the military after I saw like tons of engagement and just feedback on people really wanting to read stories, um, you know, whether it was feature stories, historical um, kind of contacts about just the history of how long women have been serving in the military, which is since the military has existed. Um, and so I think it's interesting to think about, yes, the military is kind of a, 
a niche subject even more than military women are a niche subject, but people are really looking for that type of content. They're looking for those stories. Um, so if you are a woman veteran and you kind of have this hesitation to whether you want to go into journalism or go into kind of fictional writing, I'd say go for it um, because there definitely is a, there's a market. There are people who are wanting to read, um, especially on the civilian side. Every time, you know, I get a comment or someone emails me and saying, oh, you know, I'm glad that you wrote about that um, or I didn't know that, that makes, yeah, that makes my day. Um, so it's definitely worth it. Thank you. Um, Kai, in 15 seconds or less. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I think the biggest thing is you know when I when I was on the hill I saw a lot of civilians come and advocate either for or against um, veterans and military policies um, and one thing I know is that we are experts on our experiences and went through and so I decided to make the point to actually become an expert and get to the point where no one can refute that because I got some funny letters after my name now. Um, but that, that more, more people who have lived these, these experiences um, need to have the, the tools. And so I absolutely also, there's tons of great resources to get tools onto how to become a policy expert and advocate. And I completely um, recommend it for everyone. Even if you don't get the letters after your name, you don't need the, that part though. Thank you very much. Um, I am really disappointed we are out of time because I think this conversation could keep going on. Uh, we're getting some really great, great questions continuing to come in. So authors, over the next day or so, if you have time to jump on Twitter and engage with some of uh, our audience on in that format, I think that people would be interested in continuing this conversation. Uh, I'd like the audience to join me in thanking Ryan, Mary, Kai, and Kayla for sharing these really fascinating insights. I really appreciate your willingness to be so open. I'm especially grateful to all of you for being flexible, responsive, and adaptive as we adjusted on the fly to a very rapidly changing public health situation. I would also be remiss if I didn't express my deep appreciation to Natalie, Emma, Zach, Jasmine, Chris, Cole, and the rest of the CNAS team whose hard work made this evening run really smoothly. Uh, finally, Thanks to the audience for joining virtually. I hope this was engaging and interesting content as we are all stuck at home social distancing. Please follow our authors on social media, buy their books, read their stories and opinion pieces, and keep that conversation going online. You can also follow CNASDC on Twitter or click the follow button on our website to get email updates about future content like this. Thank you all so much. Uh, stay tuned. We will be finding other ways to engage in interesting online content until we can see you in person once again. Thanks and have a great evening. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.